With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, where we explore the who, what, when, why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. The subject of today's episode might be a little bit polarizing. Some of you are absolutely going to love it. Some of you may initially feel a little bit of an aversion to it, and probably fewer of you will fall somewhere in the middle. Today, we're going to talk about hair jewelry. And I don't mean ornamentation for the hair. I mean jewelry made out of hair, specifically human hair. So if you're one of those people who are learning about the existence of hair work for the first time, and maybe you're feeling an initial sense of repulsion, please stay with us because we are going to delve into the very deep and complex ways this custom was part and parcel to the culture of many of our ancestors. Wearing jewelry made from or containing human hair may seem a little odd indeed to many of us now, but during the 18th and 19th centuries, wearing the hair of those closest to you was actually considered a really beautiful expression of love and friendship. And there's a lot to be said on this topic. So this is actually going to be our first two-part episode. Yay! (laughs) Um, Cass and I did have some discussion about this. You know, do we make one really long episode? And I may say really long, I mean really long. Um, or do we split it up? And and ultimately we decided that a single episode was just going to be far too long. And for that reason, um, part one today might be a little bit shorter than our typical dressed episode. But we promise there's lots more to come in part two. So today what we're going to do is we're really going to set up the basics about the context and the culture in which hair jewelry was created and worn. And next week, we're going to speak with a modern-day practitioner of this historic art form, um, Courtney Lane of Never Forgotten. She's going to join us in part two to enlighten us with um, some additional history about hair work and also explain some of the technical aspects about how these pieces were and continue to still be created today. But before we get to that, there's some background that is necessary to provide a frame of reference as to why jewelry was made from human hair in the first place, and in fact, why it was wildly fashionable. And she's not joking, wildly fashionable. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we should perhaps clarify right off the bat that we are speaking of the use of hair and jewelry in the context of Europe and America in this episode, um, because there are... Um, several other cultures around the world who also have used human hair as forms of adornment. And, you know, each one of these different cultures is doing it in their own unique and really beautiful way. Um, So I think I kind of interrupted you, Cass. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Why were Europeans and Americans in the past, like, so captivated by using this medium of human hair? Well, if I had to pick one word to sum up this practice, it would be sentimentality. We cannot stress enough the manner in which the fashion for hair jewelry was inextricably linked to historic notions of the sentimental and the romantic. And I don't really mean romantic here in terms as in feelings between lovers, although it could certainly mean that. I mean more of an emphasis on, you know, a heightened state of emotion and imagination that really bordered on being impractical or unrealistic. So we do find the origins of the incorporation of human hair into sentimental jewelry in the 17th century, and this practice gained momentum in the 18th century, but it was really the Victorians of the 19th century who fully embraced it as an art form. Fully embraced. Like, (laughs) almost bordering on obsession. You know, I mean, 
what was up with their intense fascination with this, with what arguably many of our listeners out there might be might be finding to be a little bit of a creepy custom. Well, it really does come back to the value that the Victorians placed on the overt expression of emotion. So one really only need to think back on the novels by any one of a myriad of authors from this period. You have Jane Austen, you have Charlotte Bronte, and many others to encounter characters frequently overwrought with emotion, both male and female. And this was just something that was a part of the way in which the Victorians expressed themselves, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, specifically to your point about Victorian literature, women's hair in general was frequently mentioned in 19th century novels. You know, it was described with great prose and in great detail. And really, like, don't even get me started on the way in which many of the male Victorian poets more or less fetishized hair in their poetry. You know, it's like Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Baudelaire, Robert Browning, William Butler Yeats. I mean, they all wrote about women's hair in, a, in an erotic context. Um, one of my faves, however, is the poet and painter Dante Gabrielle Rossetti. Um, you know, he found intimacy and solace beneath his lover's hair. A snippet of one of his poems from 1869, um, it's called The Stream Secret. It reads like this. It says, beneath her sheltering hair and the warm silence near her breast, our kisses and our sobs shall sink to rest. As in some trance made aware that day and night have wrought fullness there and love has built her nest. Hmm. That's just gorgeous, right? I, I, I agree with you. I love him. And and since we're about to dive headfirst into a somewhat macabre subject matter, April, did you know that Dante, grief-stricken, he buried a bound manuscript collection of his poetry with his wife, who sadly passed away? I knew that his wife passed away rather young, but I did not know about um, him burying a manuscript with her. Yeah, which is very sweet, right? But um, he actually decided years later that he wanted the poetry back, and he exhumed the body and retrieved it. Okay, I definitely did not know that. Eek. I mean, this is this is this is centuries before Google Drive, right? He didn't have a backup copy, I no. guess. <laughs> um, some of our listeners may actually be more familiar with Rossetti's work as a painter mm-hmm. versus a poet. Um, he was one of the founding members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And Dante's wife, Elizabeth Siddall, that Cash just spoke of, was actually his favorite model for many of the pre-Raphaelites, modeling famously for John Everett Millay's Ophelia and Rossetti's own Betta Beatrix. You know, as evidence in many of these paintings by the pre-Raphaelites, they they really shared Dante's fascination with their female subject's hair, you know, practically painting it strand by strand and their signature hyper-realistic technique that that they all kind of shared. Yeah, and for centuries within Western culture, a woman's hair was considered one of her crowning glories. So during the 19th century, typically it was grown quite long and then arranged in elaborate updos when she appeared in public. And it was really only at home or in private that adult women let their hair down. So this was viewed as a very intimate gesture and something to be seen only by those with whom she was closest to. So familiar friends and families and lovers, and of course, any number of studio photographers. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll post some images on Instagram of the extreme lengths, literally, to which Victorian women grew their hair, because they are amazing to look at. And there were these seven sisters who actually became famous for their hair. 
Yes, the Sutherland sisters. Yeah. It's said that they had 37 feet of hair between them. Right. And these women are really giving Rapunzel a run for her money. Uh, there's great photographs of them and they all pose next to each other and their hair is extending to the floor. And this is just not something that you really see that often today. So it's quite fascinating. Yeah. And and these uh, photographs that you're talking about, they they really underscore how society during this period treasured and put value on a woman's long locks. Mm-hmm. You know, when a woman cut her long hair off, it was almost kind of distressing to like middle and upper class society. Anyone who has read Little Women definitely recalls the part um, of the novel when Joe cut off her hair and her sisters proclaimed, your hair, your beautiful hair. Oh, Joe, how could you? Your one beauty. You got to give it to your sisters to be brutally Ouch. honest with you. It's, I know mine is. <laughs> that's a little rough. I don't have any sisters or brothers. I'm an only <laughs> child, so I can't comment on that. Um, but the reason Joe had sold her hair Um, which was described in the novel as being abundant. She had sold it to a wig maker for the sum of $25. And she had done this in order to pay for her mother's travel to go to her um, ailing father during the American Civil War. So so we're talking the 1860s. That means that this $25 would be about $500 in today's currency. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of money. Um. And in a brief but interesting side note here, the trade in human hair was a booming business. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah, especially if you go back to the 18th century when men were wearing wigs, and this was super fashionable. And the finest of these were made from human hair, just like the finest wigs are today. And even after the fashion for wearing full wigs passed, the market remained strong. So the women's elaborate Victorian updos I mentioned These intricate styles featured twists and braids. A lot of them were made possible with the addition of hair pieces. And at the tail end of the 1850s, 150,000 to 200,000 pounds of human hair was being imported into the United States alone. The value of this hair was almost $1 million at that time. So that's about $27 million today. That's serious business. Yeah. So... I'm really curious where all of this hair was coming from. Do you have any idea? I do, actually. Mm. I'm glad you asked. And it's actually from a super reliable source. Um, In 1867, Mark Campbell published a book about the art of hair work. Um, And he writes at that time that hair merchants were mainly sourcing their hair from, quote, France, Italy, Russia, Germany, and large quantities from Norway and Sweden, end quote. Um, And also, too, in a lot of these period sources, you will find people talking about how the hair merchants were obtaining their their product, their wares. Um, And a lot of times this was by going around and setting up booths at fairs or festivals and advertising their offer to purchase lengths of hair. And many, many working class women were happy to oblige, um, you know, in, in exchange for that type of a payment, you know, because after all their hair, it would grow back. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So but we've maybe strayed a smidge off topic because for the purposes of our topic today, um, generally speaking, was not a stranger's hair that was desired for the creation of hair work. But really the hair that 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 was used most often was that of your closest friends, family and lovers. 
1853, a London publication, The Family Friend, wrote this, quote, A lock of hair from the head of some beloved one is often prized above gold or gems, for it is not a mere purchasable gift, but actually a portion of themselves present with us when they are absent, end quote. So it's quite common for people during this period to keep and exchange locks of hair with those closest to them as tokens of love. And parents and children, best friends and romantic interests all exchanged hair. Although it was not considered entirely proper for lovers to exchange locks of hair until they were engaged. So that brings a point. Um, Shirley, you have a lock of your husband's hair. Cass, yes? <laughs> Alas, Sean is bald, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> he, I don't think he's bald. I think he shaves his head. I think I think Sean would love to have his hair back, but um, alas, <laughs> this, <laughs> this is a reality. I still find him quite handsome, however. Um, I do have to tell you that one of my all-time favorite movie moments, April, um, you're going to let me nerd out a little bit, as I tend to do, mm-hmm. comes in Willow which is my sister, my mom, my family's like all-time favorite movie uh, and my fellow fantasy geeks out there are here with me. So Willow's the 1980s movie. Uh, the inspiring sorcerer Willow is preparing to leave his village for the first time in his life and he's on a journey to return the baby princess Aurora Dannon and he makes his tearful goodbyes to his wife and she hands him her entire braid of hair to remember her by. This is one of the most endearing gifts um, in parts of the movie. But I have to say, not one I have ever considered giving myself, I must say, to my husband. Mm, Probably not. (laughs) And, you know, this really is a rarefied tradition today. (laughs) But in the Victorian era, there is a lot of discussion about this practice in literature of the period, um, both in fiction and in primary source journalism from the era. The American Ladies Magazine, Godey's Ladies Book, did a really long-running series on the practice of taking hair collected from said loved ones and turning it into jewelry. I mean, they they ran the series for like an entire decade. So that kind of speaks to the popularity of, of this practice. Mm-hmm. In one of the issues when they're talking about this, they write, quote, hair is at once the most delicate and lasting of materials and survives us like love. It is so light, so gentle, so escaping from the idea of death that with a lock of hair belonging to a child or friend, we may almost look up to heaven and compare notes with angelic nature. I'm really starting to appreciate my hair a lot more as this episode (laughs) progresses. (laughs) Um, So you may have picked up on something here in that bit about looking up to heaven. And that's because not always, but often hair work was part of mourning practices. And that's mourning with a U as in bereavement, not the time of day. Elaborate mourning rituals, which dictated the clothing and social interactions of a person in bereavement, date back to at least the 16th century. But it was really the Victorians who really took this to an entirely new level. And this makes perfect sense because of their near obsession with the sentimental, as we talked about earlier, which took a decidedly morose and maudlin turn when it came to death. And we'll speak more about Victorian death culture and mourning practices when we return from this sponsor break. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. 
And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome back. Uh, Cass, I think you hit the nail on the head right before the break when you use this term death culture, because this was really a whole thing that cannot be described as anything short of intricate and elaborate. Um, We're not going to go into the finer points of mourning culture here on this episode because we do actually plan to do a future episode um, specifically dedicated to to mourning dress. But for for our purposes today, we kind of need to know the basics of how to contextualize hair work and hair jewelry into this um, bigger picture of, of mourning. Um, Cass, where would you like to start? Well, I think the first thing that we need to realize is that historically speaking, people had a very different relationship with death. So April mentioned the 16th century earlier. Back then, people wore memento mori jewelry. And this literally means, translates to remember that you have to die jewelry. <laughs> so it was a reminder that death was intimate and that you needed to live life to the fullest now. And in the 17th century, it was not heard of for individuals to leave sums of money and their wills in order to have jewelry memorializing themselves made for their friends and family. It is said, actually, that William Shakespeare did this. Yep. And um, when King Charles I of England was put to death for treason in 1649, commemorative jewelry came onto the market and was snapped up by his still loyal subjects. And many of these pieces actually contained locks of this martyred ruler's hair And examples survive in the collection of both the Victorian Albert Museum in London and also the National Museum of Scotland. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is that whether you were honoring a king or not, by the 17th century, there was really this whole established practice of receiving a gift of jewelry from or related to the deceased. Um, And and these jewelry pieces are basically saying, hey, 
don't forget about me now that I'm gone. Yeah, and and people in the past had a much more intimate relationship with death than we do today in Western culture, both in the abstract and the corporeal. So today we think of death and its aftermath as something that occurs behind closed doors. It's something that is intensely private. But the Victorians in particular were very public in the way that they dealt with loss. Yeah, and we need to remember that this lamentable prospect of death loomed much closer for them. During the 18th and 19th centuries, the average lifespan hovered somewhere around in the 40s. And this was not because people just up and killed over once they reached the age of 40. Many people did live on into old age. We have to keep in mind that this is an average. Um, And partially this is because infant and childhood mortality rates were very, very high. Mm -hmm. Many children did not live past the age of five. Um, And as a woman, across your childbearing years, you pretty much had a 1 in 13 chance of dying during delivery or from post-birth complications. Um, And these births were were typically at home, as was the long-term care of critically ailing family members. So this physical proximity to sickness and, and the process of a loved one dying, this was something that was much closer to everyone's kind of daily life during these time Mm -hmm. periods. And this is something we have actually encountered on numerous episodes addressed, not during the Victorian era per se, although now that I'm thinking of it, um, Mary Todd Lincoln um, lost one of her sons very young. Um, But also we had talked about Madeline Viennese's baby, um, who she had with her first husband who died as an infant, as did two of Poirier's children that died very young. So, you know, this was just an all too sad reality. And um, post-mortem bodies also were kept at home during the Victorian era for periods that seem um, probably uncomfortably long to us today. And this was really part of that grieving process. So family members and friends sat with the body to honor the deceased, and um, it really served as an outlet for their anguish. And to deal with the fragrance of decay, heaps and heaps of flowers were commonly placed around the body And oftentimes, photographers were even brought in to capture this posthumous scene. Um, Lots and lots of these photographs survive with us today. And some of them feel very creepy. Yes. Especially the ones of the infants. Um, They are disturbing, to say the least. Yeah. They're quite hard to look at for perhaps obvious reasons, although in some cases, the subjects do simply look like they're asleep. It's probably that we... Just know that they're not asleep. That's a little disturbing. But I guess processing that type of loss is part of the reason why people would enter structured periods of mourning after the death of a loved one during this time. And how long this period was varied according to one's relationship to the deceased. So the closer the relationship, the longer the period of time. This did vary country to country. But generally speaking, during the 19th century, a woman would mourn the loss of her husband from anywhere from one and a half to two years some even more or mourning the rest of their lives. Um, after the death of her husband, Prince Albert, uh, Queen Victoria wore mourning until she died, which was 40 years later in 1901. So men mourning the loss of a wife was considerably less, uh, usually not more than six months. Of course, they were expected to get on with their life and find a new partner to care for any potentially motherless children. 
Yeah, women in general um, were expected to mourn much longer periods and to really kind of bear the brunt of adapting their life to the expectations of society while she was in this period of mourning. And part of this involved an entirely new wardrobe as there were very strict rules about what was considered proper to wear. First, black, the color black, would be adopted. And as time passed, custom allowed for the gradual introduction of gray, white, and eventually purple or lilac into their wardrobe. Men, uh, menswear during the 19th century, was kind of already um, realized in a somber color palette. So men didn't have to go to like extreme lengths usually to adapt their dress for mourning in the same way that women did. Um, Although it was common that they would wear a band around their arm to signal the fact that they were in bereavement. Mm -hmm. And those restrictions on colors that you mentioned, April, these even sometimes applied to the jewelry worn by the grieving. So mourning jewelry was an entire industry and there were quote unquote rules that needed to be observed. So black, white, and purple were commonly used, but not exclusively. A frequent combination you might see could be black enamel combined with diamonds, purple stones, and pearls, uh, which represented tears. Um, A lock of the deceased hair might be incorporated in a myriad of ways, depending on the type of jewelry being produced. A locket with such gems around the perimeter may feature a clear glass center, and encapsulated inside would be strands of hair plated to resemble a basket weave. Other instances may include a portrait of the deceased painted on a lavalier, with a lock of hair enclosed on the reverse. Another common motif was um, pendants or even bracelets that kind of used like a static central element on the bracelet similar to a pendant. Um, A lot of these feature the motif of a weeping willow. And this image could be created by arranging small chopped bits of hair to create the drawing. And, And oftentimes this weeping willow would be positioned over a headstone bearing the name of the person being memorialized. And this is jewelry, April. So these are small, very small canvases we were talking about. Rings, pendants, bracelets, earrings. Indeed. I mean, this this is a small scale we're talking about, sometimes even tiny. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, you can see how lots and lots of effort and care went into the creation of these items. But Hair jewelry was not only limited to use in mourning culture, and not all hair work was jewelry. Yeah, you bring us back to the point you made earlier about sentimentality. Hair jewelry was exchanged among the living as well. A woman may use locks for her own hair to create an intricately braided watch for her father or husband. Best friends might exchange tresses, and then this hair would be woven together in a manner that created a hollow tube that were combined with jewelry fastenings of gold. And the range and style in which hair jewelry was made practically knew no bounds. Yeah, it was extremely fashionable. And lots and lots of people from across the social spectrum participated in these sorts of exchanges. When her lover, Lord Nelson, trounced the French in a naval battle in 1798, Lady Emma Hamilton actually had the occasion commemorated by commissioning a piece of hair work. Um, It was a medallion that had his hair in it. um, And it also included nautical motifs and the date of the battle as well. And... Even Queen Victoria herself jumped on this hair jewelry bandwagon. It's said that when the Empress Eugenie of France visited in April of 1855, Queen Victoria gave her a bracelet made out of her own hair. 
And when we come back from the sponsor break, we're going to learn a little bit more about exactly who it was that was making this imperial hair work. Okay, April, we are back from a sponsor break, and I want to know when you will be weaving me a bracelet of your own hair. Um, hmm. I don't know. I have lots of podcasts to write. <laughs> um, okay. So, April, who is making this jewelry? Because I can't exactly picture the regal queen of England uh, weaving strands of her own hair to give to a fellow foreign monarch. So it seems like she probably had bigger fish to fry. In the queen's case, yes. We know that it's almost certain that she sent this hair out to a professional to have this bracelet created for Eugenie. Uh, And we can safely assume this because after the death of her husband, Prince Albert, in 1861, there are actual records that show that she sent locks of his hair to the royal jeweler, Gerards. Um, And there's a scholar, Deborah Lutz, who has done quite a bit of work on this subject. and, And she writes that, quote, at least eight pieces were made that incorporated his hair. One was a gold pin, fronted by an onyx cameo of the prince with a box on the back for a curl. Another, a bracelet set with the tresses from the heads of royal family members mixed with Albert's, and this was a present to the queen from one of her children. And her eight-year-old son was required to wear around his neck a locket with Papa's hair. Uh, (laughs) Very sweet. I know, very sweet and sad. Um, We cannot stress enough that this was not seen as creepy or weird at the time. So to keep a piece of your loved one's body upon your person was a grand gesture of respect, and you were really honoring that person by doing so. Yeah, and perhaps it's this element of honor that was the motivation behind a prize-winning life-size portrait of the queen, which was shown at the Great Exposition in 1851. And Cass, you've probably already guessed it, it was entirely made from human hair. Stop it. (laughs) And there, yeah, this is very popular. Like at this one exhibition, there were no less than 11 exhibits that were basically exhibits of hair work. Okay, two questions. Whose hair was that? The the queen portrait. And have you seen an image of this? Okay, so I'm guessing for this enormous portrait that they were probably buying hair, Mm -hmm. right? So it was like the market that we were talking about earlier. Um, And I have not seen an image of it. I have looked, trust me. I have found lots and lots of references to it in period sources, but I still haven't been able to find a photo of this. So, you know, this was the infancy of photography being accessible to the masses. So I don't know. I'm guessing a photo out there exists. I just haven't found it yet. Perhaps one of our listeners knows something about the potential existence of a photo. So if anyone wants to track it down or has any info, we would love to hear from you as always. And I know you mentioned this April earlier, but not all hair work took the form of jewelry. So clearly this portrait of the queen is an example, but wall-mounted displays of hair work were also beloved and shadow boxes containing wreaths created from the hair of family members served as a family tree of sorts and could take years to create generation on generation, adding on additional elements. I just think this is so fascinating. (laughs) It is, it is. And they're so intriguing when you see them in person. Mm -hmm. 
Additionally, these wall-mounted pieces, they sometimes could also serve as commemorative works dedicated to the deceased. And one could argue that their creation might even be therapeutic for the people creating them because while Queen Victoria was sending out her hair work to be created, actually a significant amount of hair work was created at home as a parlor craft. In December of 1850, the American magazine Godey's Ladies Book wrote, quote, Hitherto, almost exclusively confined to a professional manufacturers of hair trinkets, this work has now become a drawing room preoccupation, as elegant and as free from the annoyances and objections of litter, dirt, or unpleasant smells as the much-practiced knitting, netting, or crochet can be. Nine years later, practicing the art of hair work at home was dubbed by the same publication as an elegant accomplishment And we're going to leave off here today because next week we're going to pick up with Courtney Lane to find out how she became a modern day practitioner of this elegant accomplishment. And we're going to learn a little bit more about some of the techniques used in its creation. Yeah, until recently, I thought this was a dead art. But indeed, as Courtney proves, it is not. So as you get dressed this week, we hope you take a moment, listeners, to reflect on how your wardrobe might intersect with those nearest and dearest to your heart For this episode in particular, please do check out our Instagram um, at dressed underscore podcast where you're going to find some really beautiful images of hair jewelry. Yeah, you can't even tell many of them are made from human hair. They are just lovely examples of craftsmanship. They are so beautiful. Uh, But before we sign off, I'd like to mention a really adorable story um, from a couple of our listeners, Lee and her four-year-old daughter, Alice. Oh, this is so cute. Apparently, they listen to Dressed in the car together to and from school. And Alice's favorite episode as of a few weeks ago was the one about the birdies. (laughs) (laughs) This would be the episode entitled Murderous Millinery that covered the devastating um, effect that millinery had on bird populations during uh, the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century. Yeah, and after listening to this episode, Alice has now declared at age four, that she will, quote, never, ever, ever, ever wear feathers. Oh, we thank you for that, Alice, and so do the birds. The birdies, thank you. (laughs) Um, And speaking of listener mail, I'm sure we'll probably get some emails from Hairwork superfans out there. Um, You can write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. On Twitter, you can find us at dressed underscore podcast. And on Facebook, at Dress Podcast without the underscore. And as always, we post additional readings for each episode on our website at www.dresspodcast.com. And maybe, just maybe, I'm really hoping here, our awesome producers at How Stuff Works, Holly Fry, Noel Brown, and Casey Pregram, please consider sending April and I locks of your hair because we love you and all the hard work that you do to make this show possible each and every week. More hair coming your way soon. <laughs>